We're going to conclude this morning our uh, look at the sovereignty of God. And as I've told you, uh, whenever you talk about the sovereignty of God uh, and, and you really understand what it is, it should cause, I believe, uh, a mixture of both uh, comfort and faith along with some tension and maybe a little bit of discomfort. Because if you really think about what sovereignty is God is in absolute control, has the authority and the power to rule and reign and do whatever it is that He pleases. He has no limit to what He can do. And uh, the only thing that moderates that and, and, and causes uh, God to not be a tyrant, which was very typical of the gods of the ancient Near East that the God of Moses was set in contrast to, the God that Moses introduced to the ancient world was in contrast to these tyrannical and cruel and capricious gods of the uh, old, old world. And so, uh, without the holiness, what I've told you in weeks past, is without the holiness and purity and goodness, uh, the character, the DNA of God, who He is, uh, we would have a tyrant. And even with that, although we know that He's good, we know that He is kind, we know that He's filled with love and compassion for His people and for His world, there is intense suffering and there's evil in the world and it creates tension for people. Whether you're a Christian believer or not, it makes no difference. All human beings struggle with how a good and benevolent God who is in control of all things and sovereign can let the world exist like it is today. And there aren't any really good answers for that. There are some that help us, but there's no comprehensive and complete answer to the problem of evil. And probably never will be. And so John Stodd, in his great book, The Cross of Christ, says that the only thing that makes suffering reasonable and understandable, at least apprehensible to us as human beings, is when we take a look at the cross of Christ. And there... Suffering is not answered completely, but there is an answer. It's the man, Jesus Christ. And so if we as Christians can find our way to Him, sovereignty starts to look a little bit different. And I think we can live, we're going to live in tension with sovereignty as I've said over the past four weeks, but I think we can live also in great faith and comfort and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, human beings have an incredible capacity for naivete and self-deception when it comes to God. And the reason is that from the Garden of Eden till today, we are guilty of creating God in our own image, right? We create God in our image. Or we create Him in an image of something that is more palatable to us than the sovereign God who is. We see Him as a benevolent grandfather or, as some, or a great uncle that will just give us everything that we want, or maybe a genie in a bottle, you rub, you get three wishes, uh, or some sort of a force or a power that you can command and direct depending on your uh, effort and faith. You can sort of manipulate and move him around. All of those deny who he truly is. And when you do this, when you create God in your image, you are going to get spiritual heartburn. You're going to have spiritual heartburn. And you're not going to be happy with the God you have. You're going to be living in conflict rather than living at peace with Him, even though there may be some tension. Contrast this, however, with the person, and this is what I talked about last week, contrast this with the person who is willing to accept God on His own terms 
the way the Scripture describes Him. In other words, you come to your Bible and you read your Bible and you say, you know, I'm going to take Him on, my, on His terms even if I don't understand it all. Yes? Even if I don't understand everything, I'm going to take Him on His terms and let Him unfold Himself to me over the years of my life, however long it may take. It may take my whole life. In fact, I guarantee you it's going to take you your whole life. And so you're going to let God define Himself. And if you will do that, here's my promise to you and Scripture's promise to you. If you find out who the true God is and accept Him on His terms, you will find, listen folks, you'll find your true self. You'll find your true identity. And it's there that the intersection comes between the true God and your true self and magic, a, a spiritual magic happens. And you become like David the king who wrote this amazing psalm, 139. We're going to read it right now in its full. I, I wish we had weeks and weeks to go through this. I'm going to just skim it, but I'm going to give you this last piece of the puzzle as we look at the sovereign love of God. This is a man who knows what it is to live in tension, but he also knows what it is to live with a sovereign God. And he had puts the two together, and he has written for us what many scholars call the crown of the Psalter. 139, the crown of the Psalter. And if you've read the Psalms, you know there are dozens of exquisitely beautiful Psalms. And so for scholars to say this is the crown, we're going to read something special. So now hear God's Word. I'm going to read it quickly, but uh, in its full and entirety. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my works, all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from Your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, You are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there Your hand shall lead me, and Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful of your works, wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malice intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord? 
And do I not loathe those that rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Dr. Ray Ortland said this about this particular psalm. He said, God knows David searchingly, is with him, listen, knows him searchingly, is with him universally, created him sovereignly. And rather, and this is the key, rather than feeling threatened by such a God, David draws strength from his love and care and is renewed within to fight on, to carry on. You see, what he's saying is that David knows the tension that exists. In fact, no one lived in that kind of tension like David did. Read the Psalms and you see it. But David is saying, here's a place where the two can come together and I see this majestic love of God that is too high. I can't attain it. Like how wonderful. And he's giving doxology and praise after praise for this magnificent God who is sovereign and has sovereignly loved Him. And it gives Him strength to carry on. And if you know, David was faithful to the day he died. And don't you want that, folks, in your own life? Don't you want the strength to carry on to that final day? And to come what may? No matter what happens to you in your life, good, bad, or otherwise? Don't you want the strength to carry on and remain faithful to God? And plant your feet and your life in the deep soil of the king. A king like this, a sovereign king. Who wouldn't want that? And this is what we have. So let's look quickly. We're going to look at four things. I'm going to give you four headings here that you can sort of keep things organized. First of all, and this is, this is not a, a, some ingenious thing that I created. You can look at almost any commentary and look at almost any study Bible, if you will, and they break this psalm down the way I'm going to break it. Maybe not precisely, but in these sections at least. And so, this is pretty common. Here we go. His knowledge, first of all, His knowledge of us. His knowledge of us. Second, His presence with us. His creation, thirdly, of us. And finally, our consecration to Him. Okay? A knowledge of us, peace, a presence with us, creation of us. And finally, our consecration to Him. And I'm going to go quickly. As I said, we could take each one of these and spend weeks on them. But we'll go and just skim it. And perhaps later in the year, uh, we can go back to this. First, His knowledge of us. In every human being, and psychologists, and doctors, and scientists, and theologians, and philosophers, and everybody out there that makes a comment on human nature of any kind, have all said this is universally true of human beings across the board. No matter where you live, no matter your religious background, everybody, every human being. First, there's an innate desire to be known, to be known, really known, down deep, and to be accepted by that person who knows you. It's the desire for relationship. It's the desire for intimacy. It's the desire for transparency. And it's the reason why we do not, we're not meant to live on an island alone. We're meant to live in community. Now some people, you know, not everybody likes just being around lots of people. And that's okay. And some people need lots of people. And that's okay. 
Whatever your particular makeup is, however God has wired you, that's all right. But you know something is wrong when someone doesn't want to be around anybody or have anything to do with anyone and wants to be utterly alone. We would say that person has something wrong in their head. But there's also, at the same time as that desire to be known and transparent and in relationship, ask yourself, isn't there also an innate fear to be known? Aren't we also afraid to be known fully? Because why? Because if people knew us really all the way down, if they knew all our secrets and what we did in private, when no one is looking, not even our spouse, if they knew those secret things, what would they do? What would they do? They would reject us, yes? If I told you everything about me, you would not want me to be your pastor. Now I know none of you believe that. And there's one. Thank you. Alright, I mean, come on. If you really knew, you'd say, how could that guy be a pastor? I ask myself that question all the time. Why, why in the world am I a pastor? Of all people, he should have passed me up. Of all people, he should have passed me up to be even a Christian. He should have, he should have ignored me. And yet, he set his love in. He hemmed me in. Yes? And if you're honest with yourself, you know that's true. And so the psalmist, is, the psalmist is a deep thinker. He's thinking about this. He goes, you know, God knows me down to the bottom. He knows Bathsheba incident. He knows my heart with Uriah, her husband, and killing him. He knows the failures I've made. He knows what I've done in my private moments. And He still loves me. He hems me in. And it just astonishes David that a God like this could also have a sovereign love for him. So he searched me. Look at verses 1-4 through four, quick. He searched me. He knows me. He knows when I sit, when I rise, when I'm on the path, when I lie down. He knows my ways before I speak the words. He already knows. He knows my heart. He knows me utterly, comprehensively, completely. But, even though He knows all of that about me, look at 5 and 6. You hem me in behind before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And this language that David is using here of God knowing is not just knowing about me, knowing the facts about me. He knows my social security number. He knows my driver's license number. He knows my weight and my height and you know all this other stuff. No, He knows me in an intimate way. It's the same word that we use for sexual intercourse. Knowing. Knowing in the Bible way, if you want to say it like that. That intimate, naked way, He knows us that way. To know is God knowing you, listen, with an unmerited favor. In other words, you don't deserve... There's nothing in us that is, that's good. He can't look in here and say, well, you know, there's that one little thing in Chuck that is really special. Everything else, eh, I can hold my nose. But the, that one thing is pretty good. So if I work with that one little piece, I can kind of make you know, something out of this. I can take uh, the, the piece of coal in Chuck and I can turn it into a diamond in the rough. Well, maybe not. Maybe a zirconium. Uh, I'll work on that. You know, you, we don't know what he's... But the fact of the matter is, he sees us all the way to the bottom. He sees the black, the dark, and he sees the good, the things he's put there himself. And he loves us. Listen to this. If this doesn't 
set you on fire today, I don't have any. All we can do now is pour gas on you and actually light you a flame. If this won't help you. He never, never has loved anybody in spite of their flaws. He loves you because of them. Amen? He loves you because you're broken and weak and frail the same way if you looked at one of your children that was broken and frail and weak and handicapped and limping and had whatever disease, you would love that child with their flaws, maybe because of their flaws. And you would do everything in your power to iron those out and to work those out or at least hold on to them for the rest of their lives. Yes? And if you don't see that, you don't understand how God is looking at you today. David saw it and it blew his mind and set him on praise uh, that is amazing. It is nothing less than God's electing, predestinating love. Now, I know everybody has their own views of this, and, and uh, I have my own views of it, and I know it's a very difficult doctrine, the doctrine of election. But for a moment, please, set it aside all the theological issues, the what-ifs and the wherefores about the doctrine of election. And just stop for a moment and think about what it's saying to you. That God has hemmed you in before and behind. That He has reached out. That He has known you. You weren't out searching for Him. He comes searching for us. And if you say, oh no, I've been searching for Him, then the question is, why? Why were you searching for Him? And so Charles Spurgeon said, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I never would have chosen Him. And He must have elected me before I was born or He never would have elected me afterwards. And He must have chosen me for reasons unknown to me. For I never could find a reason in myself why He should have bestowed upon me special love. Now once that sinks into your heart, it will change everything about you. Once you realize that God has purposefully come into your life individually and rescued you because He loves you, everything else will change. And you actually become a Christian. Because that, by definition, is what a Christian is. This knowledge, God's knowledge of us, His searching of us, His hemming us in, His laying hold of us, his binding us with cords of love to Himself. That is what it is to be a Christian. Not your some assent to Him. Well, you know, I'll take you or leave you, and so today I'll take you. That's crazy, folks. That's nutty. It is Him coming to us and laying Himself down for us. What about His presence? Look at these verses 7-12. through 12. How can I get, what he's saying in verse 7 is, how can I get away from you? I see the intensity of this search. I see the microscope that I'm under. I understand what's happening here. This scrutiny that I'm under. And how you have, that you know me all the way to the bottom and still accept me. And it's almost too much for me to take. How can I flee from your presence? This is an honest man. You've got to love David. This is a man that's saying the truth. He's not giving pious religious cliches to God's love. He's saying, no, this is actually scary to me that you know me this way. How can I flee? How can I get away? And then he answers it rhetorically. It's beautiful. If I go to heaven, there you are. If I go to the grave, there you are. In other words, death can't separate me from you. 
What do you think of that, folks? Someday you're going to die. Some of you sooner than later. Death cannot separate you. Now, I know we're Presbyterians and you know we can't show too much emotion because God forbid. But my goodness, where is the astonishment when we are told by Almighty God, death will not separate you from Me. When everyone in this room is terrified of death, and if you say you're not, you're lying. Why don't we get excited? Why doesn't that send us into praise and worship? Why for a moment can't we even let our hearts go? See, I don't understand it. And yet I'm guilty of the same thing. I ho-hum and I yawn. Well, that's nice. I'm going to be resurrected. Oh, big deal. Well, it is a big deal. Go with me on Tuesday to the Cancer Treatment Center and sit there and watch all the people who are slowly dying while they're being treated. I, want, I took a picture, I, one of the first selfies I've ever taken in my life, I took at a cancer treatment center the other day, of myself in my recliner with all these IVs stuck into me and they're dripping chemotherapy into me. And I thought, I'm going to put this up on Facebook. And the caption underneath, I didn't do it because my wife uh, is a wise woman, but uh, I was going to put it up, yeah, man. I was going to put it up on Facebook and put under there, killing me softly. You know, I'm all relaxed in the, in the chair and I'm getting dripped and getting poisoned to death. Actually poisoned to life. Yes? Don't you, we, we don't think right, folks. We're backwards. We're upside down with our thinking. Death cannot separate me. Why should I fear? Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. David knew this. What about distance? He said from the east, from the morning, the rising of the sun into the west, the Mediterranean Sea, across the whole panoply of the earth. Whatever David knew of the earth, he didn't know the earth was round. For all he knew, it dropped off over here and dropped off over there. But it didn't matter to him. He said from one end of the world to the other, I can't escape you. What about hiddenness? He said, you know, even the darkness is light to you. You know, you can go in the darkest room. When I was a little kid, I've told you this story before. We, I, I, when I was little, you went to uh, Carlsbad Caverns. You went with a, a, a park ranger and you went down there with a flashlight. And you know, there were very few lights. And you'd go down, you have to be careful. Everybody's kind of holding on, you're scared to death. Now it's all lit up really nice. But they'd get down to the very bottom to where that Rock of Ages, have you all been to Carlsbad? You know the Rock of Ages? And the park ranger would turn off all the lights and it would go pitch dark. You d- did you ever do that, Jeff? Jeff and I are the same age. Don't tell anybody. Uh, okay. And the park ranger would, would light you know, the, his flashlight and it would be pitch dark and everybody would sing Rock of Ages. around. Now they wouldn't do it now because, you know, separation of whatever. So, but the fact of the matter is as utterly and completely dark it was in Carlsbad Caverns at the bottom. Not a speck of light. 750 some feet below the surface of the earth. One little tiny flashlight dispelled the light. Why? Because darkness is what? Nothing. Light, however, is something. It is waves and beams and molecules and it has substance. And so the tiniest bit of light dispels the darkness. And that's what the psalmist would say. Even the dark can't hide you because darkness is light to you. You're so utterly and completely present with me. And what about creation of us? 
13 through 18. This is again just back to the outline. Listen to the language he's you formed my inward part. You knitted me together. You made me intricately, wove me. You wrote about me. The, the days of my life are written. You know, God is writing something about you into a book. All the days of your life are written down by God with His pen. And David says, how, how precious to me are your thoughts. You're even thinking about me. Do we believe that, folks? Do we believe that God's thinking about us? I know He thinks about Jesus. I know He thinks about some of you because you're such wonderful and good people. He's got to be thinking about you. But He's also thinking about scummy people and lost people and people from other faiths and religions. He's thinking about everyone. And His thoughts towards us are amazingly good. What that means is for those of us that belong to Him, His thoughts have been a power in our life. They've moved us towards Him. Drawn us in towards Him. It should send us into what it did David. Doxology. You see, the language here is God as an artist. An artist? A craftsman? A builder? An architect? All of those things that He is fashioning and making something out of nothing. It's the language of a parent who looks at a child whom he or she, the parents, have created through their union of love. They have created something that was not there before and it is precious and valuable to them. Most of you have children and there's a lot of little ones here in our church, thanks be to God. How many of you don't just adore your children and would not lay your life down for your children? Of course we would. We love our children. We adore our children. Even when they're naughty, we love our children. What gives them that value? You. You are pouring that value because other people don't have the same feelings for your children. You are pouring that value into your children. You're defining what they're worth. And this has great ramifications when it comes to your redemption. Because think of how God felt and thought and was in relationship with His Son. And to turn to that beloved child, His Son, His only, and say, will you go from here to there for them? And knowing now that He sees everything in you all the way to the bottom. Complete transparency. Will you go from here to there for them? Will you do it? And Jesus didn't say, well, let me think about it for a moment. He said this, Nevertheless, not My will, but Thy will be done. I will go and I will go gladly. It's My delight to do Your will, O God. God created you. He gave you value. He loves you exquisitely beyond anything we could imagine or even think. For God so loved the world, in this way He loved the world, He gave His Son for you. For you. Fear. Terror. Obligation. None of those things can create the kind of consecration, that's the last part of this, 
None of it can create that kind of consecration and obedience. You can't be terrorized into obedience, can you? I mean, you can be forced to do something by fear, but you're going to do it and you're going to hate the one making you do it, right? But there is a different way to motivate people. And God knows that way. He knows that He is going to motivate you and move you towards radical consecration and obedience because He loves you and is gracious to you. And so if you're serving Him out of obligation, it's, below, it's, it's way below what He wants for you. If you're serving Him because it's your duty, merely your duty, that's not enough. It's going to wear out eventually. You're going to get tired. That's why so many Christians just get tired of being a Christian. I'm tired of being a Christian because I feel like I'm always having to earn His favor. And David doesn't go there. You've created me. You've loved me. You've searched me. You know me down to the bottom. Therefore, I hate every evil thing and every evil way. And this troubles us, I know, and I'm troubled by it when I read it. But it's one of those places where David uses poetic and, and uh, literary language uh, uh, to, to, to go over the top and to go in contrast God's magnificent and benevolent love for him with His devotion. and So he's saying, I'll chop off my arms. I'll slay the wicked. I hate everybody that doesn't love you. He's, just, he's using extreme language to explain his devotion. And we have to understand that he's doing this to get our attention and to show us the contrast that is there. He loves God intensely. And therefore, he's required to hate what God hates. And then he does this final act of consecration. He says, search me, O God. See, God searched him. Now he says, search me, O God. Try me. Know my thoughts. And the word for thoughts in Hebrew can also be translated. Many translators do this. My misgivings. My doubts about you. My fear of you. All the things that keep me up at night that I'm not sure about. My misgivings, my doubts, my fears, my weaknesses. You know those. He knows our doubts, our weakness, our fear. And then he says, see, see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What he's saying to God is simply this. And by the way, folks, this is a prayer, this little section right here that I try to pray almost every day. Just that little piece of Psalm 139. Search me, O God. You know what? I know there's stuff in here that needs to be dealt with. Get in there and do it. Let's go to work. I don't care what it is. I don't care where it is. I don't care what, how bad it is. I'm not afraid because I know you accept me. And therefore, let's go to work. Let's dig deep. Let's find out what's there. And those have been some of the best times in my life personally, and I hope that you will take that seriously and spend a few days just asking God, search me out, look inside. And if you see something there, you start working on me. I will cooperate with you. I won't resist. If there's any grievous way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. See, take me to where I need to go. This is intense consecration. So how do you do that? I mean, that's a tall order. How can you do it? If you're a Christian, that's probably your heart's desire to be devoted to God that way. And yet so many of us find it difficult to do. How do you get there? How do you make the crown of the Psalter, 139, 
your life story. And I'm going to suggest this. Take 139 and put it on the lips of Jesus Christ. Put it on the lips of Jesus. See Jesus praying this prayer. You see, in the Gospel, God knitted Him together. He was already existing, but He knitted a body for Jesus in the womb of His mother, Mary. He knit Jesus together. He searched Him. He knew Him. This was not just somebody that He knew in a second dairy way. He knew Him in a primary way. In other words, He was looking at Jesus. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word was, as I've told you over the years, prostontheon. The Word was face to face. Pros is face. Facing God. He was with Him. Looking in the mirror, He saw Himself. The image. His perfect image. The image of His Son. And put those words on Jesus' lips and listen to the consecration of your Savior. The One who now today stands before God for you and as you. I'm the Good Shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me. You see the language? Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life for the sheep. My food is to do the will of God, the One who sent me, and to accomplish His work. I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. He who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do what is pleasing to Him. And yet, we know that God did leave Him alone. That God did forsake Him. And where He did it was on the cross so that He could take away all of the stain, all of the sin, all of the darkness from us. Empty it completely to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the very dregs so that for the rest of eternity, for your life and mine, for all time and eternity, He would look on you like this. Psalm 139. Don't you like that? Yeah? That should send you into the same kind of doxology as David. The kind of praise, the amazement. And if you're not amazed by God's grace, folks, you need to come talk to me. And let's find out what we need to do to explain that to you and help you with it. God's grace is amazing. And when you see what Jesus Christ has done for us and out of love for you, it'll change who you are. Obedience will not become difficult. It'll become a delight. And when you fail, you'll feel bad and you'll struggle with your failures. I do every day. But you'll run to Jesus every time. You will not be afraid to run to Him with all your shame, with all your dirt, with all your mess. You'll run to Him and you'll say, I'm here again. Help me. Save me. Have mercy on me. And He will say, gladly, come here. Jump in my lap. Let me clean you. Let me fix you. I am your Savior. I've searched you and known you. And I accept you. We want that, yes? And if we'll, if, if we'll take God at His Word, He'll do that for us. Let's pray.
Father, thank You for searching us and knowing us, for loving us in this way, this exquisite way that is amazing grace to us. And we ask, Father, that You would make this sovereign love a love that we embrace as we do everything else. Help us, I do pray, in Christ's name. Amen.